there's an aria in the opera Nixon in China uh, called News. Because arias are titled, um, the, the naming convention is whatever the first line of the aria is, is the name of the aria, unless it gets a popular nickname. Right, so the Queen of the Night aria, as it's often called, is Der Hule Rocha. Because it's Rock, a cocktail minum Hudson, you know that one, um, you know stuff like that. Uh, I am so sorry, people who just heard me sing. Uh, I am not a soprano or a colorera or anything like that. Um, but yeah, there's one in Nixon in China called News because the first line is just like News, 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 News. <laughs> like, it's a really good opera, actually. Um, there's a song. I get a drop of that. Yeah, there's a, a an aria of by the wife of of of, of Mao, um, and she sings the aria about being the wife of Mao. Um, it's pretty good. It's like the best aria in that show. I'd I'd argue. Everyone, go watch Nixon in China. It's a good o- opera. Anyway. <laughs> Justin, I'm Skull Com Library. My pronouns are he and they. I'm Sadie. I work IT at a public library, and my pronouns are they, them. And I'm Jay. I am a music library director, and my pronouns are he, him. We got news. Speed run again. Good news this time. Uh, Good news, news. Uh, if you had heard of the Dayton Library debacle in uh, southwestern, southeastern Washington, excuse me, a conservative group wasn't satisfied with the library's response to basically their request to ban a whole bunch of books and instead turned around and tried to put closing the library uh, district on the ballot. Uh, Only one library in the entire county, it's a tiny rural county, and they got enough signatures to put it on the ballot. A uh, pack of citizens who did not want that to happen turned around and sued both the county and the uh, woman who uh, led the whole thing. And the judge just sided with them and said, yes, this is illegal. No, I think she said this is unconstitutional. And if it wasn't, it would be illegal. Because, for one, because of the structure of the rural county library district, the people who lived in Dayton City proper, which is about two-thirds of the county, wouldn't be able to vote. So a third of the county would be deciding on whether or not the entire county gets to have a library, including the, the Dayton Library is inside Dayton City limits. So the people who use it wouldn't be able to vote for it. So that was a mark against it. Uh, Very strongly, the judge was like, that's taxation without representation, and it shouldn't have gotten, uh, shouldn't have gotten to the ballot to begin with. Uh, And, oh, and the uh, judge took a look at it. The part about it being illegal is that the initial petition that was presented, two thirds of the signatures were invalid. Oh, great. Yeah. So that itself should have made it so it didn't actually reach uh, the ballot. 
Yeah, I, there is good cause to believe that there were persons that willfully and unlawfully engaged in fraud by giving deliberate misinformation regarding this petition, Carl, the judge said. It is telling that the in, in the initial petition presented, two-thirds of the signatures were invalid. The court finds the declarations filed are persuasive and that even if this petition could somehow overcome all of the legal and constitutional hurdles, there should be an investigation into the potential criminal acts engaged in to collect the signatures needed for the petition. So that was shot down pretty thoroughly. Um, the judge was also very positive about uh, keeping the library open uh, on top of all of that. So I know this this news story has gone, or, gone around as the first attempt to close an entire library district solely based on book bans, and it has failed. Yay! And it didn't even have to go to vote, which would have been uh, absolutely terrible. So good news coming out of Washington, I am glad to report. Yeah, this was in my good news roundup. And then uh, the other good news roundup I had, I had to take out because it was immediately undone by the Fifth Circuit. Oh, cool. Which was the one in tech, the the Texas, the crazy judge in West Texas that everyone judge shops for was like, no, you can't do this book censorship thing. And I now I and he was like overturned within like a week. So I think he just knew that the Fifth Circuit was going to contradict him because he wants to keep doing his crazy anti-abortion rulings because he's the only judge in that district. So if you bring a suit there, you're guaranteed to get him. And he's like a, a fucking maniac. That's fantastic. Yep. Yeah. The thing also, rural library districts, it's like created as one, but it's within the city limits. And it's like really interesting thing about like county and city government. This is like a whole thing that was like big when they started making like home rule movements. There were a bunch of these in Florida. I think they happened all over the place in like the 60s and 70s. But like county and city governments just like merged because of shit like this, where like one third Mm -hmm. of the county government wouldn't be taxed. But they could vote on stuff. And if you lived in the city limits, you'd be double taxed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and within the case for for Dayton, the city, the city residents are taxed for the library district. Yeah. So, yeah, they wouldn't. And they probably pay extra taxes in the city. Probably. Yeah. So like county and city property taxes, probably. But yeah, rural rural library districts are always interesting because several, a couple of the, um, Library systems I've worked for have passed similar things for capital budget reasons. So basically, we recently passed one to get a new library in a community, and it created it cre- created a rural library district or something to that effect in a place that's I guess is technically rural, but is is actually contains a city limit. So yeah, it's it's always weird how those end up working out. Yeah, I think it's a funding thing or something. Yeah, it's confusing as hell. But more good news out of the other Washington. The FCC plans on reinstating net neutrality rules. Yay! It's like an edge of pie. Yeah, fuck you, Reese's. Stupid Reese's. (laughs) God. And I say that as somebody who fucking loves Reese's. You fucking tainted it for me, you asshole. I love big mugs. I do too. But yeah, they uh, finally got a fifth, um, what are they called? A fifth commissioner sworn in so they can actually start doing shit at the FCC. And one of the first things chairwoman is planning on doing is reinstating 
net neutrality rules as they were before the Trump administration. Yay! Can we get uh, a W in the chat? Now the cyber is so big. The cyber is so big now. Hallelujah. That is absolutely true. You know what? He was he was cooking on that one. <laughs> yeah. I think the biggest issue for net neutrality is like mobile data rates, right? Because that's usually where the fuckery happens, isn't it? Probably. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I'm not... I'm not entirely certain, but if I was to speculate, I would say it would have to do, well, the towers thing. Who can use what towers is always. Uh, I forgot about that. Yeah, fucking mm. wild. So, because they're usually privately owned, I think they're not maintained. Yeah. And also, it was like the cable companies that own streaming services also run your internet so they could charge you on your data caps for like Netflix, but not for their streaming services. And I was just reading about like uh, net neutrality in other countries. And I think it's kind of like, yeah, certain websites, like it doesn't count against you if you use them. I think that's where the mobile stuff comes in the most. Yeah. Well, I mean, telecom companies are, they're never just one thing now. It's like you can get internet or cable or your phone plan through all through Comcast and Xfinity now. And yeah, so I think the distinction is going to become less and less practical among, you know, regular folk. Hopefully it will maintain, it will also do that for regulations like the FCC. So it doesn't matter if you're getting cable or internet or cell phone service, it all falls under net neutrality rules. Yeah. I lost my train of thought because I was thinking about Amazon because Amazon's got the Federal Trade Commission thing coming up. Um, So there's going to be an investigation into their antitrust uh, practices because uh, they just choke supply lines all over the place and Mm. use anti-competitive size. So like if you if you sell through Amazon, you have to like pay extra to be prime eligible. Uh, And so that's an anti-competitive business practice because Amazon is also selling its own products through prime shipping and promoting its own products to the top of the queue and stuff like that. Yeah, I totally forgot where I was going with the FCC thing, though. We're doing Day in the Life of Justin. That's me. Hey, Good it's here. Hey, Justin. Long time no see. I, um, I'm doing this because I was trying to do an HVAC episode and that ended up being too much research. Seriously, HVAC. It'll get you every There's like time. Three people talking about it on Blue Sky, and I'm like, do I want to get them on? Do I want to just do this myself because it'll be easier to just like read like a bunch of articles? We should get a facilities person on sometime. Tbh. Yeah, I agree. That and also, I mean, I'm gonna go with like a like a, like a preservation studies stuff. Hmm. I started reading a study about like uh, how preservation, they were actually testing like how climate controlled areas like affect things that are in boxes and things that are in, I guess, on shelves. And mm. there's like not a whole lot of research of just doing research mm. on how fluctuations impact it. It's, it's actually doesn't seem to be that bad, big of a deal. Yeah. Yeah. All that shit. Like I know there's like some like preservation and conservation stuff that like, like for, there's this one film preservation school and to get in, you have to have a degree in chemistry. <laughs> like just to get into this program, you have to know chemistry for it, which like makes sense. Cause it's like film, but yeah, that, that shit is like, I think they need like, we need like wizards to work on HVACs and to like 
I don't know. I feel like I feel like magic would solve these problems. Anyway, yeah, like Justin. Thing. Yeah, what is your job title? Scholarly communications librarian. Cool. I didn't know if it was some like librarian of whatever, whatever strategy librarian. Like, I like it when uh, job titles are short, sweet, and to the point. Now, did does your job description actually warrant you to, to probably have multiple things in your title? <laughs> Instead of just scholarly communications librarian. No, because scholarly communications librarians are just uh, librarian level admins who do all the work of like an associate dean, uh, but don't get paid to do it. And then also have to know about like copyright and publishing and shit. Yeah. And just like try and get other parts of the library to work together because you're usually a department of one person and you need other people to help you. So you've got to make friends with everyone, but no one's you're not anyone's supervisor. So it's, you're doing all this from the wrong direction. So it's always kind of a joke that, I mean, a lot of people who do Skullcom are very high speed, I would say, and also prone to burnout. I get along very well with Skullcom librarians, I think, because they tend to be, I mean, I don't like the introverted, extroverted, like dichotomy. I don't think that's real, but they tend to be the more extroverted ones. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Like my, uh, yeah, I, I get along with them very well because I'm like, Oh, I don't scare you. Cool. <laughs> I scare all the catalogers. <laughs> yeah. Sadie is, is laughing at me. <laughs> cataloging is cataloging is where the quiet ones go. It's true. That's mm-hmm. why I couldn't get a cataloging job. <laughs> that is real by the way. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. But I mean, I, I've I've always insisted that you have to be very assertive to do this job. Well, you have to kind of whether you're introverted or not, I mean, everything's a skill. Like I'm an extremely introverted right. person. I because I think the introvert extroverted thing I was uh, someone was talking about this recently, but like most people aren't even supposed to be in either of those categories. Like most people are in the middle. Yeah. But I think I would genuinely fall in introverted. Yeah. Because uh, I spend most of my time alone. Yeah, uh, but you are very good at like t- talking with people and yeah. doing that for like your job. Yeah, and you have to, and this will come up when I do like the daily thing because it's like I had a surprisingly busy day because sometimes the weird thing about my job now is having to set my schedule to other people's times. So you have to wait for faculty to be ready. And so it's very hard to do things on your own time, which I'm the kind of person who I would prefer to just like knock out all of my work by working like three hours really intensely and then dicking around the rest of the day. That's how I tend to work on anything is just like obsessively sit there, not move, not blink until I'm done. And then when I've run out of stuff to do, I just kind of like dick around, which doesn't really work because you can't force anyone's hand because you're not an administrator. So even if you were administrator in the library, it wouldn't be good enough because you're not an administrator in the university. So you can't make anyone do anything. So you have to kind of wait for openings and it makes it some days are just very boring and nothing really happens um, unless you have a lot of processes kind of running in the background, which we've got a few. Um, but that's only because I actually have a team now. If it was just me still being solo, it would be a lot more. I would just be doing presentations. I'd just be doing outreach. I lost my train of thought. Processes, background processes. Oh, uh, Yeah. So stuff that just runs like um, services. So like we monitor every publication that comes out of the university 
and reach out to the faculty members and ask them for the version that we can put in the repository. And that makes us very, very good at getting stuff in the repository. And it takes about, I'd say about six hours of work a week. So it's a really good investment of time to have a really successful repository program in terms of just getting numbers of deposits, percentage of open access up. But, you know, we can't force anyone to give us the papers. And so we have to kind of always be on top of them and always asking. So that's the way we're running the program now without any kind of mandate or any kind of uh, force, because there's only the unforced force of uh, getting to know people and reaching out to them. And then we have all kinds of other stuff with open educational resources. That's just kind of like the other half of my job. And that ends up with a lot of academic overhead and a lot of data tracking, a ton of data tracking. And that's ended up taking so much time that we're hiring another person kind of just to take over a lot of the data entry that we're having to do. What kind of data? A lot of it is tracking student savings. So if a course gets redesigned, then we need information on the course. We need the enrollment. We need all the sections. That all takes a lot of time. If we do faculty engagement, we, we basically have a home-built customer relationship management database. So we built one out of scratch because we don't have access to a good one. So we built one in Airtable, which has, I would say, 800 faculty members in it. And that, at a glance, can tell us how much we've saved students with our redesign program, how much we've saved with buying ebooks. And of course, ordering those ebooks. So we get the data from the bookstore. We run all the ISBNs through our purchasing system. We put in, the, we reach out to faculty, ask if they want it, put in the purchases, email the faculty, send them the link to the book, put, and then estimate the student savings. So all that data has to get recorded as we're doing the process kind of manually. Um, nothing about this is really automated, although since books don't really change a whole lot year to year, that was really only intense for the first few semesters we did it. And I'd already handed it off by the time it started slowing down. Other data, if we do professional development, so we'll know if they came to one of our paid professional development things. We track when they're done, if there were any requirements they didn't meet, make sure they met all the requirements, and then we send that data off to process their stipends, which goes directly into their paycheck. We track our budget, so what budget that we've gotten out of academic affairs. They give us money to, to run these programs. We also have money to send students to conferences. So we're tracking, and also what the library spends in terms of Spark membership and OEN membership and how that's changed over years. So we know how much we've spent and invested and how much students have saved based on estimates. Our estimates were a lot more conservative, but the system is kind of changing how they do the savings estimates. So I don't like it, but it's a lot easier to do, and it also is a lot more generous. So it looks like we've saved a lot more, but... I prefer doing it conservatively because I could ex always explain why it was that number. This one is more of a, eh, it's like $800 a student. I don't know, whatever. And then you just multiply 800 by the enrollment and it's just pretty lazy and I don't like it. But it's probably the only way you can get massive amounts of people to estimate these things. I just, uh, we were we were being much more careful with our numbers um, and actually got the actual cost of the book subtracted the cost if there was still any cost for course materials. So sometimes just homework like systems that you can't get rid of, especially in math, because they really are dependent on that automatic grading system stuff because they don't have GAs anymore. So all that work has already kind of been automated away. Like the grading work in mathematics is like already gone. So yeah, that's a huge amount of data. And we eventually have just like, we need a full-time person to take that load off 
And then also help us with, you know, we could comb through syllabuses and find out if people are still using OER like a year later. That's something we can't do now. But if we had a full timer, we could ask them to start combing through people we've redesigned and see if they've kept using it year after year. And then we could add more estimates on how much students uh, uh, cost savings we've done for course materials. So it's a pretty huge database. And, but I mean, it's honestly, we were juggling like three different spreadsheets, which was when we only had probably like 200 faculty names. And now we've got four times that. And it's, uh, we just have to keep it up. So it's a, it's a pain in the ass, but it's literally the only way to track it. I would like to do that for the other process, the outreach for open access. But the way we get those publication alerts is through email alerts. So we don't have like a, I would rather ingest it from an API directly into Airtable and then reach out in Airtable and say, okay, we got it or we didn't get it. And that would tell us how successful those outreaches are. But OpenAlex isn't quite there yet. Um, mm. But I've been playing around with the API for OpenAlex for it to get like to the level where we could replace. We basically have alerts running from Google Scholar, Scopus, which we haven't had Scopus for like years, but my email alert never expired. So I've had the email mm. alerts going for three years and I've just been forwarding them to my library assistant automatically. So we still have Scopus on our end, uh, <laughs> Web of Science and NIH, uh, PubMed. So he cross-checks all of those. Um, he does too much manual work, but once his workload increases, I'm sure he'll learn how to say no to things more often. That sort of thing, too, is I, I train, I've trained two librarians now, fresh out of library school, to do this kind of work. And they've got different personalities and different backgrounds. And I have a very specific idea of how this role should work. But now that we're a team, we can compensate for each other's weaknesses. So you don't have to do this all alone, which is kind of the big struggle and why a lot of people probably burned out, is you have to kind of be forceful all the time. Yeah. Which, yeah, that is exhausting. Yeah, it helps if you're just like kind of a little, little bit crazy because after I was like unemployed for a while, I just decided that I was a God's gift to librarianship and because I had to write so many cover letters saying how great I was. And I was like, you know, what if I just believed it? What if it's true? You know? Yeah. Is it? It is. It is true. What other main elements are there to my job? It's kind of two different sides of things. One is the open access and one is the open education. A lot of, I mean, I've been saying for a couple of years now that scholarly communications librarians will go away and that job title will kind of only exist for administrators over mm. like a collections and scholarly communications. So they'll merge with like e-resources because of all these transformative agreements, because now it's okay, can we get a good transformative agreement because everyone's charging article processing charges? No one can pay those out of pocket. We have to have these transformative agreements because no one can possibly afford these things. The big publishers still don't want to give us really good terms. Some of them do, but Elsevier doesn't. Elsevier is just the worst about this. They give us like a 15% discount. It's like, woo. It's still like $4,000 or whatever. Like, who cares? That's way more money than anyone could possibly shell out a la carte. A lot of them started off with kind of like accounts. So you would have like first come, first serve, and it would get you 100 papers or $15,000 or whatever. Um, but some of the agreements have just been full waivers. So if you have a subscription, you pay a little extra and all the article processing charges are waived. And since a lot of these legacy publishers are like hybrid, they've still got like subscription access and some of them are open access. 
So a lot of these are hybrid journals. Those are supposed to be phased out, but who knows what's going to happen there. Um, oh, gold open access, the article processing charge open access has been very lucrative for them. So they're going to keep going with it, but it creates all kinds of perverse incentives, like increasing the amount of articles that you put out, which is what's gotten MDPI and um, Indawi in trouble mm. because they've been pumping out too many special issues, which have scattered their topic focus and that got them removed from web of science for being off topic yeah i know in my thing instead of saying like what is a standard day i gave like and i gave a couple of examples of like my days either kind of look like this or they look like this like do you have sort of a standard kind of daily walkthrough that you could give us or are there examples of like here are some extremes of what my day-to-day work flow looks like there aren't really extremes. Um, luckily, everything runs kind of smoothly at a larger institution. There aren't any big fires to put out. Stuff doesn't just break out of nowhere. But usually what I've recommended is having at least a hour or two of professional reading to stay on top of everything in the field. So a lot of it is, you know, checking your listservs, um, checking reports that are coming out. So, for instance... I got sent a report on open access book publishing business models by my dean. He just forwarded it to me. Uh, so I started marking it up to be ready to talk about possibilities for the library doing publishing. So uh, we have a very small Pressbooks project. We don't have any funding for it. We've been talking about it for years in terms of how to get open access book publishing happening at the library. And so I need to be ready at any moment to kind of just launch into a business plan for how we would fund open access monographs. If someone says, well, how do you fund it? What kind of, you know, knowing how the spread of income happens in these open access presses at other universities. So, for example, if you are running an open access press, you're probably going to be carried by like one or two major books. And the larger your press is, the more those major books carry you. And then that frees you up to run a lot of smaller press stuff. So like many things, um, you start to see like these like Pareto distributions where a small amount of work does a huge amount of impact. So you see these all over scholarly communications where like a couple of books are carrying a press or a couple of papers per journal carry the journal. Uh, So like a couple articles get really, really high citation scores, and that makes the rest of the journal's impact factor higher. So you see all these things, and when they averaged out, they are not useful numbers. So you always have to ask, what's the median of these numbers when someone's trying to pitch you on, you know, we get this many citations, or we pull in this much money on average. You have to check if those averages are actually mathematically useful, because a lot of time the distribution is just split between a small amount of things highly performing. You just see this this kind of distribution all the time. So say I got pulled into a meeting with the provost or whatever, and he wants to ask about like, hey, someone mentioned bringing back the university press. I would say, okay, well, here's what's going to work and what isn't because uh, these university presses are consolidating. Here's how much of a deficit the large ones run. They don't make any money. No one makes money publishing academic books. If we want to make money, we have to do print runs. Do you do print on demand or do you um, have like a, a thing that's going to actually run the print sales? So I just have to kind of be ready to talk about stuff like that all the time. So the one or two hours of professional reading every day keeps you on your toes so that you can focus on what is it you're going to jump into because you just have to sense an opening and go for it. 
um, because you never know when you're going to have like 10 minutes with the provost or the president or one of the executive vice presidents. Is there a reason you do that like first thing or do you just do it anywhere in your day where you have like an hour? Um, It's usually because I'm just checking my mail and that's when I start opening up PDFs Mm. and then I'll start going through first thing in the morning. I try not to schedule meetings too early anyways. Same. Usually not before 10. So I always keep my inbox like I, I never have unread emails. So so I always have either stuff that I've been reading or so if I boot on my computer and open up Adobe, it'll have whatever I was working on marking up. So I usually go through and highlight a PDF so that way my eyes don't wander too far. Once in a while, I'll just print it out. Actually, I tend to do that for things I'm just going to read once, but I want to read it quickly. So I'll print stuff out and read through it and just kind of throw it in recycling. Um, or I'll just throw it into the stack. So I have an OER stack and an open access stack of, of academic articles if I want to go back to it later. Mm. And that can be about all kinds of stuff like feminist approaches to open access publishing. You know, people get backlash if something is more visible. So what are the feminist implications of doing work about sex and gender or feminism? If you're going to have a bunch of people just like tearing your work apart, wouldn't it be better just to keep it behind a paywall? So those sorts of equity concerns you have to worry about and be ready to talk about because someone's going to bring them up eventually. Uh, So that's, you know. There's all kinds of weird things that will come across your desk. And since it's not really, since it's a very wide field, you know, you've got the science communication aspects, you've got the publishing aspects, the copyright aspects. Um, You know, I might just spend a day reading a lot of copyright cases, uh, especially if like a bunch of stuff happens. So a couple of cases happened recently and I was just reading about them. So there's not a reason. It just kind of gives a little bit of structure to my day because otherwise I don't have a lot of structure to what's going to happen in a particular day Mm -hmm. because I don't have a lot of regular meetings except with the people I supervise and my boss who I meet once a month. Yeah, because more or less I work independently, so I don't have to check in very often. I did have a question I wanted to ask, but maybe it'll be for after, Um, but I could ask it now. And if we want to wait till after to answer it and go ahead. In my episode, you mentioned a work journal. And I know what you mean by that. But I saw people in the discord being like, Hey, Justin, what's this work journal thing? That sounds really cool. How do you do it? What do you do? So I wonder if like, through talking about what your day like your daily work through looks like what how does your work journal and what does that look like play into it? Yeah, so work journal is something I started doing when I had my first librarian position. Uh, I don't remember who recommended it to me, but the idea is you kind of write down just what you've been working on throughout the day, people you talk to, projects you worked on. Um, It really helps with memorizing names quickly when you're in a new job. In fact, there's so many people at at my current job. I just had a list of people. I got just a separate file of like people and like what they looked like so I could remember their names faster. So that's one way. Now I do it all in Obsidian. So I actually have hyperlinked people. So that way I can throw, I can see every time I've met with them, I click mm-hmm. on their name. It's going to show me every time I've written a note with them, as long as I remember to keep typing their name in. And then they also have like a separate markdown file just for them. So I can say like what their position is, who they work with, what projects I've worked with them on. But these are all just like my personal notes. They're not really super detailed because they don't need to be. Generally, I do it hour by hour. Some people do it at the end of the day. Some people do it weekly. Where I was working right out of grad school, we did daily reports to our director. So we would just write up what we worked on for the day, like a paragraph, and send that in. I would just send my work journal so I would cut out my personal notes. 
And it would just say like eight worked on this, nine worked on this, 12 worked on this. And if it was something that the director didn't really care about, I would just start cutting it out before I emailed it. So I'd copy it over to an email, cut out that part and just send it because I was keeping the work journal anyway. This is also pretty useful during COVID because they didn't know what to do with remote work. Uh, and so I just had my team start keeping work journals. And then eventually they actually mandated these kind of insane PDF. They were built in PDFs and like like Excel sheets that you had to write in your tasks for the day. And if you were hourly, you had to do it like by 30 minute intervals or something crazy. That's just a waste of time. You know, it was a huge waste of time and no one read them. No one read them. Um, and I was uh, like, the moment we went remote, I was like, here's what we're doing. Here's how we're doing it. We're going to have these meetings once a week. You're going to keep a work journal. You're going to send it to me at the end of the week. Here's how detailed it has to be. And I was like, everyone could have done this, but just no one has any idea how to remotely manage a team. Um, if they can't just like walk over and kind of lean over the cubicle, like office space style and just be like, Hey, what's going on? I need to, people are just like that. Uh, universities are much more conservative in their, in their organizational structures. But one good thing of the pandemic is people learned how to fucking use zoom, which was a menace because no one would. Now I can just be like, yeah, I don't, I don't need to go to the other campus or whatever. Like we're just doing this like over zoom or over the phone. People are just more comfortable working at their computers. I had so many face-to-face meetings before that. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of, I mean, there's nothing, there's no secret to the work journal. Like you can make it as complex as you want, but it's really just, a, especially like now, I don't keep it as strict as I used to because I know what I'm doing. It was kind of really, it's much more useful earlier in your career, I think, or when you're starting a new job. Because yeah. it helps you know who you're working with and what you're working on and exp- and keep track of everything. Whereas I don't really need to do that because, you know, I have a department calendar now that I share with my team. I have my own Outlook calendar. Kind of when I meet with my supervisor, I'll just kind of scroll through my calendar meetings and be like, because I also put just personal blocks of 30 minute time, like send out those emails on this thing, work on this presentation. So I can just go through my Outlook and be like, oh, yeah, that's what I worked on last week. That's usually yeah. what I'll do in a meeting with him is I'll do that just right beforehand, put it into my you know, my notes for the meeting. And then while I'm there, uh, you know, if we're meeting over Zoom, which we usually do, I'll just go through the Outlook calendar, see what's in there. So my Outlook calendar has kind of replaced my work journals a little bit, too, but I still have it. It's also useful because if I find something when I'm off work and I try very hard not to work outside of work hours unless just shifting time. I'm like, okay, I'm going to read this like during, you know, when I start work tomorrow, it's very useful to, you know, if I, if someone shares something on Twitter or whatever, I can just copy the link, throw it into obsidian's daily note, and then just go grab it the next day. Yeah. That was something I kind of used to do. And I need to get back into the habit of, of having a like, um, shutdown or closing ritual at the end of my day. And part of that was setting myself up for what I would be doing the next day. So like if I needed to be working on something that was like in the browser, closing my computer, like leaving work for the day, but having that tab open on that browser on that computer so that when I got to my computer, it's like, oh, it's right there ready for me. It's amazing how much that helps, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that I do that with PDFs. There are a lot of times, too, where if it's like a website, I will just print it to PDF so that it can sit in my Adobe for me to come back to later rather than having like a million tabs open. Right. Because I'll like just ignore own, them. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, uh, you get like tab blindness, you know? Yeah. I generally tend not to keep a bunch of tabs open. 
Yeah, like I know I left some tabs open on my browser, work browser today, because it's like I needed to respond to like a, a two hour reference interaction that I had and I needed to follow up on it, but I didn't have time because I had like a meeting right after and then I had to leave. Um, so I just left the tabs open from the consultation, like from the <laughs> interaction in my browser. And I was like, that way I'll do it first thing and I'll remember what I was going to do just because I just left the the remnants of the, the reference interaction on my browser. Yeah. I still have like, we also have like reference tracking that's kind of done centrally. And I also have to figure out ways to remind myself to go in and submit those reference interactions to libguides. So, or libwizard. And so I'll either, I have those in my Obsidian daily note. Those links are always there at the top of my daily note to help remind me. And then sometimes I'll just, if it's an email reference, I'll just throw it into a folder that says like references to be added. Um, so that way I'll remember to go through and that I haven't done those yet. And I'll usually either move them out of the folder or delete them or something. Some things that came up today, uh, since I have the... Institutional repository, uh, we consolidated a lot of our digital collections. So we used to have content DM and we had a hosted Omeka. And now we have a self-hosted Omeka through our IT department, which is a huge pain in the ass and B-Press. So we are working on having some digital collections migrate into B-Press. And there were some issues because these were very large TIFFs that were turned into PDFs. And Adobe was just crashing, trying to load these giant scanned maps as PDFs, but we couldn't put them in as TIFFs or we could, but people wouldn't use them. So we were trying to figure out exactly what the issues were. So there's like a digital collections aspect that just popped up in my day of trying to make a decision on what to do with these files. So we decided to compress them so that people could view them easily and then put as a secondary file the full size Either the full-size TIFF or the full-size PDF. I can't remember what we decided on, but putting those as supplementary files uh, so that people can actually see it at a glance. And then if they have to go in and get the more detailed version, because a lot of our traffic comes through Google Scholar, so you want people to go directly to the PDF. But if they're going to download a PDF that doesn't really work, then that's going to be a problem. So we had to decide what's going to be most useful within the limitations of B-Press. So just figuring out how to get the stupid software to work in a way that makes sense, because it's just not as simple as putting a file in or retrieving it. It's how are people going to interact with it? How are people going to use it and download it and uh, things like that? I got a email out of nowhere from uh, one of our departments asking, or they said, we heard you had interest in doing a presentation on predatory publishing. And, you know, this faculty member uh, mentioned it. I haven't emailed that person over a year, so I don't know what's going on there, but probably they talked to someone who said, Justin will do it. And so I was like, absolutely, I'll do a thing on predatory publishing. By the way, I've been wanting to get on the agenda of, you know, your collections meetings or your your collections meetings, your department meetings so that I can say everything about the new the new projects that are coming up or that we've been working on, the new services that we've been building in Scarlet Communications. Uh, can I get onto your agenda or do you want to do this combined? So we set up a date for me to do the presentation. I had to update this shared Excel document that has every department in the university on it and who on my team is going to reach out to them. I've been doing most of it so far. Uh, who the faculty member contact is, if we've scheduled a date. And so far, I've been reaching out because we haven't done this in a few years. So I've been reaching out to get onto these department meetings or school meetings or college meetings. 
and just get a one-to-one chance to talk to the faculty members directly. So I had to jump on that opportunity because I had to remember that that was something I, I'd been waiting to talk to. And then I wrote up a new description for the talk and I sent it to the department. And, you know, if I get good turnout, that'll be good. If I don't, then I'll press the issue again after I do the presentation because I'll remember if I haven't done it yet. So that was one spreadsheet updated so far. <laughs> and then our OER redesign grant, um, the ballots had been tallied. So I worked with our open education librarian. We split up the faculty that were going to help redesign courses. So we split them down the middle, depending on if we've already worked with them, if we're working with them on something else. And also people who have dropped out in the past, if we're going to move them into this cohort and then setting up those meetings with the cohort, which luckily I have a, I use Boomerang with uh, Outlook. So it'll just embed a little clickable schedule and they can just click it and it'll send a a Zoom meeting for both of us and it'll automatically accept it. So I can send that BCC to all five people and then they can just click on those times and uh, it'll set up the meeting for us. So that saves me a little bit of time having to do this one-on-one. And then I went into the CRM database to update that I'd reached out to them um, so that when I actually have the meetings, I'll start marking off, okay, I've met with them, I've met with them, they've dropped out. You know, it helps us keep track of what process they're in or what part of the process they're in and when they're done so that we'll have them marked to uh, pay out the stipend at the end of the semester. And that was most of, that kind of, I think, covers the whole swath of things. There wasn't really anything related to like journals, except the predatory publishing thing. It's going to be about journals. Uh, but there wasn't anything in particular about, oh, we did get a weird email about uh, our relationship with the bookstore and getting some more data that we have to get for compliance issues. Uh, so if you have an OER course in Texas, you are supposed to market in the course catalog as an OER course. And the way we've complied with that is having zero co- zero materials costs and low materials cost designations so that students can search by those. So we were gathering that information by a separate form that our IT set up. And we just had a meeting with IT to like fix some bugs in the form. And then our, I guess there's someone new at Follett Bookstore. and He's got it in his mind that this form is stopping them from getting good textbook adoption rates uh, because it's too confusing to have two places that you have to you have to fill out two forms. And that's too much. Uh, so they've cut us out of the all faculty email that goes out. So we're not going to be in that email anymore that we've been working with them and helping them helping craft the language on to get that course marking data that we need because the bookstore data isn't accurate enough for us to be able to mark the courses. So they're going to try and do it that way. And I've got another meeting where we're going to figure out, okay, what are we going to do? Um, so I just forwarded it to my boss and I said, you know, we've got to talk at the provost about this. We knew this was coming more or less that the bookstore was, they had already sent out an email saying that this was like our fault that their compliance rates were low, which isn't true. Um, it's just no one cares. And so we already knew that we were going to have to have this meeting eventually. So um, it was just kind of surprising to get uh, the kind of final year cut out of this communication line, especially because the library can't send all faculty emails. So we always have to go to an external department to send an email to all faculty members, which is a huge pain in the ass. Yeah. What the hell? Yeah. Don't you hate when your job is emails? I hate when my job is emails. I really hate when my job is emails. Yeah. yeah, but we find out whenever someone in the president's office retires or whatever, that goes to all faculty and staff, but nothing useful. Like some someone I've never met. And it's like, cool, 
I don't care. It's not worth sending me an email about. I mean, good for their office, but, you know, if we can't send those kinds of emails, it's a problem. I mean, actually, it used to be that everyone could send all faculty, all emails, um, but that led to a little too much uh, organizing. And so that's why companies don't let you do that anymore. So if you've ever wondered why it's so hard to send an email to everyone in your organization, that's usually why. But I'm pretty sure at my last job, I could send an all-faculty email without any special permissions. Yeah, I can send... So basically all of the all lists, except for all name of my conservatory, because we're so small, right? So it's mm-hmm. like, there is just, there's just send it to literally everyone in the whole organization ever. I can't send to that one, but I can do all faculty, all staff, all students, all conservatory students, all music ed students, all online students, etc. cetera. Yeah. I can do that, but I can't go send this to everyone in one big thing. I just have to do it, add those. You just have to add four. Yeah. Whereas I would have to add a thousand just to get the faculty members. Which is uh, bad. Yeah. I I mean, we don't even have like an all library email list. We do have a listserv for people who who wanted to sign up for like an open education listserv. But it's honestly easier to just copy from a list of faculty members that we're going to target for something. So say 40 or 50 people and just copy those emails out of our database and put them into an Outlook email and just send it that way. And sometimes that's how we have to do it. But yeah, uh, cross-campus communication is really tough. It's not just us who has that problem. We cover everything. Yeah, because like I was going to ask, like, what professional development do you do? But that like reading you do is a lot of it. And then I assume you do conferences and stuff every once in a while. Yeah. Also, I, I want to make sure Sadie has to the chance to ask questions if they want to <laughs> conferences not as huge it used to be um a lot of like free webinars have been there was there was they were kind of getting better and better up until 2020 and then i think they kind of started to decline in quality mm. in terms of professional development webinars that were just kind of offered for free because i don't know people were just doing them or they just clogged up everyone's email because they're like, Oh, if we're doing it on zoom, let's just invite everybody. Um, and people Mm. weren't really running them very well. And so I've kind of fallen off doing free webinars, but conferences they're they're, you know, we have kind of, since a lot of them have moved online, they're a lot cheaper. And so we can do more in a year rather than just like one big one. Since I haven't traveled at all, we haven't spent any, we haven't really spent any money. So uh, we can just register for like the open education conference that's coming up or the US ETDs, um, electronic theses and dissertations conference. I think I'm registered for that. I don't know. I'm like a I'm like a representative from my region. So I think I'm registered, but I don't know. I haven't really done anything with them. Um, mm-hmm. Spark sends a lot of uh, good information. We're Spark members, so we get the member updates and we also get like calls on like the financial disclosures that the companies do. So if like uh, there's a financial disclosure about, you know, the quarterly reports or something, then Spark will have, what's his name, Claudio Seppi, do a presentation where he will run over it. If they've got a new report out, they'll do webinars on that. There's also committee meetings, like working groups and stuff that I'm active, I'm semi-active in. Um, You should just go and lurk. But there's lots of good information because there's lots of people like Scarlett Gavin, who we've had on, uh, Dorothea Salo. Shouts out. Um, they're both running working groups in Spark um, around privacy and contracts. So I can learn a lot from them, but a lot of it I can't really put into practice because, again, you're not an administrator. So, you know, I have, I've written a whole privacy policy for our library that's it's gone nowhere. Um, it just kind of has sat 
uh, and I can't really, I'm not really in on the contract negotiations. Um, and even when I did sneak into the negotiations with Elsevier, I've kind of slowly been blocked back out. So uh, we have to organize kind of in different informal ways. So there's a group of open education librarians throughout our system. And then I run a meeting for scholarly communications and research data people that meets bi-monthly. And we've just kind of taken that upon ourselves to run those meetings because no one else does. And it actually gives us information into what deals people are getting, what contracts they're able to sign, just data that doesn't get shared very often. It's just easier to set up these regular meetings and, ha- and get that information. Um, any other professional development? No, I don't think so. I mean, yeah. probably, but um, I've, I've had a few people who have been good mentors or at least colleagues who are more experienced than me and have been there to answer questions. So uh, Twitter was pretty good for that. A lot of Skullcom people were very active on Twitter. Um, a lot of them are not now. So they've migrated to Blue Sky or the Skullcom shit-talking Discord. Um, that's probably where all of them are, really, is the is the big Discord. Is it actually called the Skullcom shit-talking Discord? Because that would be amazing. No, it's called Evil Empire. And it's I'm the Elsevier it, logo. And I don't look at it at all. But I'm there. But I don't do anything. Except yeah. every once in a while, Justin will tag me and like, hey, what was that? AO3 trope thing that I keep referencing, but forget exactly what it is. And then I have to say hurt, no comfort. And you're like, yeah. yeah. And then I go away like a, like a thief in the night. <laughs> yeah. I was making a point about something. But I don't remember what. Yeah. There are a lot of non librarian, non Skullcom people in there too. Um, but everyone in there is pretty cool. Yeah. So far probably hasn't been infiltrated yeah. by relics people, but could happen. Yeah. Yeah, I know um, the music librarian who is my like mentor, who has also been a Skullcom librarian and is very, very knowledgeable about copyright um, in general, but also like music copyright. She's getting really active on Blue Sky now, like she's made that migration and is talking more there as well. Um, yeah. When I sent the, the tweet in our group chat. Um, I think it was today with her opinion. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's her. I didn't know. Yeah. She's the reason I'm a librarian. Yay. That is that is true. <laughs> I think I was following her, but I don't remember why. Um, I don't know her. Uh, but yeah, there's like a relatively tight-knit group of people who do Skullcom and who are like the most poster-brained of us. And they've been very helpful in learning the ropes and what we do differently. And then, honestly, one thing I've also done is, like, search every university, like, every large university in Texas for skull compositions and just put that into a big spreadsheet. So that way I just mm. have contact info for people who are in Texas doing the same thing as me. Yeah. For like the library school students, yeah, the library school students listening who might be interested in such a career, like what would you maybe recommend for them or say to them or advice or anything like that? I don't know how good Skullcom education is in library school, if you'll even get a, a an opportunity to do a class on it. Just like learn, take a copyright class at least. <laughs> yeah, or like just a couple webinars. I mean, you really only need to know the basics to get started. Um, copyright doesn't come up as much as you might think, but it's useful to know the licenses, creative commons, how they work, how reuse works, get a good solid grasp of like how copyright works practically rather than like edge cases. 
but and the rest you'll pick up over time in listservs. There's a big Skullcom listserv by ACRL. You can start following that in grad school. I was definitely following a lot of listservs in grad school, and that was where I. That's a good idea. Yeah, same. Get on the listservs. Some even like we'll have like some like ALA organizations and roundtables will even let students join as members and get involved at like relatively low work. So like do that. It's good. Yeah. And you'll meet a lot of people. Yeah. I was lucky enough that, you know, people were still active on Tumblr in the library world. So I've met a lot of people through that and then they migrated to Twitter. Um, So now I would say get on Blue Sky if you want to have like a social media experience. That's probably where you're going to find a lot of of, uh, interesting people uh, in digital humanities and Skullcom and copyright lawyers migrating. Mm -hmm. Uh, In our Discord, people uh, share Blue Sky codes all the time as they get them. So, yeah. I have, I have like invite. four, so yeah, if anybody yeah. needs one, just drop me a line. Yeah. But I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to plan for a Skullcom career because it really depends on what's open. And like I said, I think these jobs are going to go away as they become more specialized into. I also keep job alerts. That's something you should do in grad school, too, is start Google job alerts mm-hmm. and watch how the job titles change the duties change um i've never turned any of them off i've had them that, that helps yeah that helped me decide what courses to take mm-hmm. in grad school because i would look at job ads and be like ah that's a skill i don't have i should take the class that lets me learn about that skill yeah or so, asked to do it at work you know just like i think i cataloged yeah. like five things just to say i'd done cataloging right um, yeah so i asked our cataloger like let me catalog some stuff um, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that you can start looking at and start crafting your resume to look like those job ads. And I've never really turned them off. So I can see how the jobs change, the requirements change over time. They're definitely starting to look for more senior positions that didn't really exist all that long ago. So they're now looking for people with like five years, 10 years experience and specifically in Skullcom. Uh, those kind of jobs didn't really exist a long time ago, or at least I never saw them. Yeah. Um, research data that- management librarians are coming up, open education librarians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at uh, I remember at my previous job, the the Skullcom person was also the head of the department that included the digital library and the institutional repository, and so like by default, the Skullcom person, like she wasn't the person who did the institutional repository, but like she oversaw that, right? And like she had a lot to do with our digital collections as well. So it's like I don't know how often you see like the digital library and the Skullcom worlds intersect in jobs. But I know that was true at the last place I was at. Some places keep them separate just because the platforms are separate, but really consolidation makes a lot of sense. Um, I did a job Mm -hmm. interview recently where I recommended that they need to do some consolidation because their digital collections, their Chris system. So that's the um, research information system, which tracks kind of all the the grants and the publications of a university and their institutional repository were all separate systems and they could consolidate there. And sometimes people have multiple, like an exhibit system might be a separate software. So Omeka might be separate. Uh, so you mm-hmm. might have all these different platforms that need to be consolidated and you might end up working with special collections to do that. Because I originally wanted to go into special collections, but it's very, very, very competitive. Um, jobs yeah. just don't open up. It's not even so much competitive. It's just really jobs never open up. Yeah, that's people don't leave those positions, or they don't get refilled. Yeah, or it's like all like project grant based stuff. Right. Uh, a lot of people yeah. will jump 
two-year gig to three-year gig to two-year gig. And that's also very tough. So I would say Skullcom is easier to aspire to get into. Mm-hmm. And it definitely doesn't hurt to know all the stuff that it covers. because. Uh, but really the main thing is to know how to do instruction and know how to do outreach because nine times out of ten, that's going to be part of your job. Yeah, to me, it feels like a role that's good for like jacks, jack of all trades kind of people who like have a sort of like a, a, a skill set where it's like they have like a bunch of different things in their pocket that they can do because it sounds like that you do a lot of that in Skullcom. You have to be kind of like knowledgeable about this and that and this and that and this and that. Yeah, I mean, this isn't really good career advice, but I mean, something that was said to me was if you're you're, it's really useful for your first job to be at a small library because you get to do a bit of everything. And that was definitely mm-hmm. helpful for me because I did get to do a bit of everything. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the more stable jobs at big universities want specialized experience. So it depends yeah. on like how good the state of the job, you know, the, the job openings are and the job descriptions and just how good you are at working your own resume into looking like you're more specialized than you are. Yeah, doing a residency that gave me experience and everything uh, hurt me, weirdly, even though I thought it would be good to have a jack-of-all-tradesy kind of experience. It was all like, no, have you lived and breathed cataloging and can recite Mark off the, you know, with your eyes closed and, you know, whatever. It was like having sort of a broad skill set hurt me in cataloging specifically, but catalogers kind of suck sometimes, so. Cataloging and special collections both usually want very specialized experience, but everyone else is going to want, and that, but those jobs don't open up that often. Everyone else is going to want to know, can you teach a class? Can you teach a webinar? Can you send an email? Can you do outreach? Can you work the desk? Yeah. And then maybe do circulation on the side if it's a small library and that'll get you jobs and access services and all kinds of front facing positions. That's just where more jobs generally are. Mm Mm-hmm. Like we have a big tech services department, that, but that's pretty non-standard. Also, we just don't have a whole lot of librarians. So I think if we hired a lot more librarians, we would become less tech services heavy. Yeah. University of Utah has got a huge like tech services thing. Like the whole like fourth floor of that library is just where like the catalogers and special collections and digital collections is like, and they've got like glass like walls. So they get sunlight. Um, they're not in a basement, right? Mm-hmm. And like, I know we make that joke of like, oh, you put catalogers in the basement, but like, it's bad for you. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. <laughs> treat, treat your catalogers like you treat your plants. Water them regularly and make sure they get the right amount of sunlight. They're like succulents, you know. There you go. There you go. Catalogers are like succulents. What kind of plant are Skullcom librarians? I know, probably one of those like ferns that just kind of sits there, doesn't does its own thing, or like a spider plant or something. Spider plants are prolific. I like the ferns because then you poke them and they do the thing. This is not a visual medium, but um, the ferns go like and they like retreat <laughs> if you poke them. Everyone, post a comment. What kind of plant are you? Give what us kind your of plant, plant is your job? What's your plant job? Oh, that sounded dirty. <laughs> oh, yep. That's me. Is I don't think that's me. But All right, I think I got everything. Yeah. 
I like that idea about like spending an hour read, getting caught up on like listservs and like professional reading and everything. That's a really good idea. I like that. You really have to, and I, I also recommend it for people I'm training. Um, in fact, when I on when I'm onboarding someone, I'll just meet with them every morning, and because I usually assign them a lot of things to read, uh, because mm. you don't learn this in library school. So then I have to like, you know, what did you read yesterday? Got any questions? Okay, go ahead and work on whatever. So I just meet every morning for like a couple of weeks and you can get a lot done in that amount of time, especially if you have to cross train people. Yeah, I should do that with my graduate fellows. They don't like want to be librarians, but their graduate fellowship is technically a scholarship. So it's not like a student job. So maybe I should give them things to read. Yeah, I just usually give them that and then I'll, I'll bring them in. So if I'm onboarding a new student, I'll do that for like a week or two. Um, but then for a librarian, it, it takes a few months to really train them because uh, there's just so much to catch up on. And then kind of instilling the habit and them of keeping up with all this stuff because there's just a, a big wide world of it. And you have to be constantly keeping up with what other people are doing. Um, so that way, you know, if you know, you're not getting enough support um as well it's it's managing your workload is kind of really essential to this too and it gets more difficult once you have a team of people and but i i kind of encourage everyone to still work independently and, and manage around workloads and know when they need to say no but you've still got to look out just as a supervisor um librarians tend to say yes to too much stuff and that can get that you in trouble true. because if you overcommit then you have to take away a service and that's way worse than never offering the service in the first place Mm-hmm. much bigger pain in the ass though just know when to say no keep a list of things that you said no to that's uh, also good advice i got until you have more support this is on the no list and i would keep a no list and on my wall and these are the things i've said no to that's a good idea it works i built a whole department i was like give me more people but yeah i mean there's lots of good advice out there you just have to just write it down and memorize it once once someone gives you a little tip like that. It's really it's just really useful. You never know. Also, you never know what's going to come in handy. So any kind of interest you have, just sort of pursue it. You never know when it's going to be relevant. I'm sure something at my work eventually is going to involve Bataille. And it'll be like a good thing that I've been reading his biography. I finally listened to the... The Acid Horizon episodes with, was it Stuart Hall? About like Bataille and like the climate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's Stuart Hall. It's- it's a different Stuart guy. somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuart somebody. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, cool. say to go feed their dog. Good night. <laughs>